Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of Upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. Right? Yeah! Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters, and I am very excited about today's episode. I've got the first part of a great interview teed up for a little later on with the amazing O'Teal Burbridge. You may know him from the Aquarium Rescue Unit, the Allman Brothers, Dead & Company, the list goes on. O'Teal is a legend. And this conversation was so incredibly interesting, so stick around for that. I'm also really excited because I have a new solo album that came out last Friday. It's called Trance Banjo, and this project has been over three years in the making. It all started when I was experimenting with making samples of old symphonic records and using that as part of the soundbed of my tunes. And it was really unique and cool, and it worked with the banjo, and so I started filling things out with beats and synthesizers and strings, virtual instruments and whatever else is in my studio, but it was a huge project and this is my pandemic silver lining. I got to finish Trance Banjo and you can stream it anywhere. Just search Chris Pandolfi and give it a spin. There's all kinds of different sounds on there. There's ambient textures, there's more like up-tempo, almost bluegrassy sounding stuff, and everything in between. In fact, the theme song for the podcast is track six, Asleep at the Wheel of Fortune, that you hear at the beginning and end of every episode. So something for everyone on there, check it out. And as I was doing the press around this new album and doing interviews, got a lot of questions about influences and inspiration, and I thought that would be a cool thing to dig into in the intro today and talk about the power of inspiration and the amazing legacy that influential artists leave behind and take a look at who I think are the two most influential instrumentalists in bluegrass history, Earl Scruggs and Tony Rice. So we'll get into that here in a minute. Inside the Musician's Brain is brought to you by Osiris Media. They are behind many great podcasts, including Undermine, which is a fish-centric show, which is really interesting and is just getting rolling, so check that out. We're also brought to you by Americana Vibes. That's the String Dusters record label, and we've got some really great stuff coming down the Americana Vibes pipeline, so keep an eye out for that. 
And we have some great sponsors on board this season, including EMG Pickups. They make the pickup that's in my banjo that I've been using for years now. Sounds great, super reliable, and very easy to install, which is huge. So banjo players, if you are looking to get loud in a club type situation, I really recommend the EMG pickup. And I also think very highly of the people at EMG. They've been great to work with, all made in the USA. Family owned and operated since the 70s, and they make pickups for all kinds of instruments. So if you're looking to amplify, check out EMG. Inside the Musician's Brain is also brought to you by D'Addario, a great supporter of the string dusters from early on, and I haven't had anything but D'Addario strings on my banjo for years now. And they've come out with a new line of strings called the XT strings, which have an incredibly long lifespan. I, I don't think I've broken an XT string on stage yet, which says a lot because it gets rowdy up there with the string dusters. They also make really quality, reliable cables, tuners, and all sorts of other things. So musicians, check out D'Addario. Okay, so as I said a moment ago, I've been thinking a lot about inspiration and musical influences, the legacy of different artists. It's a really rich topic. And as I do interviews and field questions around this new solo album, people are always asking and always have, you know, who are your influences? And I'm always just blown away to revisit the incredible universal influence of Earl Scruggs on the world of banjo, on every banjo player that's come after him. And I want to kind of explain what's so powerful and unique about that. And I think another reason that this whole idea of influences has really been top of mind is because this past Christmas, we lost bluegrass titan Tony Rice, who I think many people would agree could be the most influential acoustic guitar player of all time, certainly in the world of bluegrass. So these names kind of keep coming up here in the recent past. This concept of inspiration keeps coming up. So let's take a few minutes and pay homage to two of the greats and explain why their influence is so unique, so enduring, so monumental. Now, I'm not going to get into a full-on history lesson here. Both of these legends have been well-documented, but Earl Scruggs' super-abbreviated bio goes like this. He was born in 1924 in North Carolina into a very musical family, started playing banjo at a young age, ultimately developed his own style of playing the instrument, which became known as Scruggs style, and in his early 20s, joined forces with Bill Monroe in late 1945 for what bluegrass historians pretty unanimously agree was the advent of bluegrass music in 1946. Now, here's the mind-blowing thing about Earl Scruggs. So he develops this style, Scruggs style, with finger picks on the thumb, index, and middle finger, playing these rolling, rippling patterns of notes with the melody woven into that pattern. No one was doing anything like this before Earl came around. Yes, there are some predecessors who get some credit for planting the seeds of playing the banjo finger style like Snuffy Jenkins, but Earl developed this blueprint that has become a bedrock element of bluegrass, and he developed this style to a point where bluegrass players today still just try to emulate Earl Scruggs note for note. So think about that for a second. He made up his own way of playing the instrument and got it so dialed in that it has stood the test of time as the gold standard of bluegrass. Now, of course, banjo players outside the idiom have developed these amazing diverse styles and brought the music to these new and different contexts, guys like Bela Fleck. But in the bluegrass world, banjo players are still to this day chasing Earl and always will be. And if you look at the other instruments, mandolin, starting with Bill Monroe, you know, the dobro sound of Josh Graves, these things have just become so much more refined over time. And there are a few specialists who play in those older styles, but when it comes to banjo, all the bluegrass cats still chasing Earl to this day. So prove me wrong, but I don't think there's another musician in any genre who, with no precedent, developed a style for playing an instrument and saw it out all the way to fruition to where 
players in that world are still trying to copy that note for note to this day. Think of any influential musician, people like Jimi Hendrix or Bob Dylan. They had so much that came before them that influenced them that they could rework and put their own twist on, but not Earl Scruggs. He had a vision that was all his own, and it has only gotten stronger with time. And if you ask any banjo player from the most progressive guys to the most traditional guys, you have to learn Earl to understand the mechanics of the five-string banjo played with three picks. And Ben Eldridge, a legendary banjo player from the seldom seen, gave me some of the best advice I've ever received with regard to banjo playing. He said, you have to learn Earl to put the more progressive ideas in context. And that's always something that's really stuck with me. So yeah, it all comes back to Earl Scruggs in the realm of banjo. And think about that level of influence. I mean, what would all the banjo players out there be doing with their lives if it wasn't for this one visionary genius? And perhaps an even bigger question that you need to ask when it comes to the influence of Earl Scruggs is, would bluegrass music even exist if Earl's picking style had never joined forces with Bill Monroe and the style, the songcraft that he was developing, because it's not like there were a lot of banjo players out there for him to choose from. And if you ask any bluegrass historian, it was the combination of those two things that really set the wheels in motion for bluegrass music. So that's, that's quite a legacy to ponder right there. And it's bigger than just the banjo world, it's the whole bluegrass community. What would we be doing with our lives if this genius hadn't come along. Thankfully, we'll never have to find out. We are eternally grateful to you, Earl. Now, on the topic of larger-than-life influences, the world lost an acoustic guitar icon for the ages this past Christmas day when Tony Rice passed away, and I will never forget the first time I heard Tony, the power, precision, and emotion in his playing just knocked me out, and he has a legacy that I would put in that same category as Earl's. Now, Tony's origin story is a little different. He didn't have no strong predecessors like Earl did. We had Clarence White and Doc Watson who were already bringing the guitar to the forefront as a lead instrument in bluegrass, but he took what they did to a whole nother level. That all really started with the David Grisman Quintet, and then he evolved into this really versatile artist who was an incredible soulful singer with this amazing, eclectic catalog of songs, covers, originals. But like Earl Scruggs, as an instrumentalist, Tony's guitar playing has undoubtedly touched every guitar player in bluegrass since he came on the scene. His tone, his phrasing, his lead ideas, Everybody tries to copy Tony Rice. It's another of these universal influences. And it's so much bigger than just the notes that he played. He changed the whole role of guitar in bluegrass, which was not a prominent lead instrument. Yes, there were some guys doing it, but after Tony, ripping a lead on the acoustic guitar is like the cool thing to do. So you've got a guy who's revolutionized the role of the instrument, the style that you play lead, and that's not even the most universally emulated part of Tony Rice's playing. If you ask hardcore guitar players in the know, it's his rhythm playing that is perhaps the most influential thing that he left behind. So his rhythm playing, that's what he's doing You know, 90% of the time when he's strumming the guitar, laying out the chords and the rhythm for the band. And while it's not as catchy as the soloing, it's the most fundamental part of a bluegrass band sound. And while a lot of players try to take those lead ideas and sort of make them their own, the rhythm playing, you really cannot do it better than Tony Rice. There are cats out there who dress like Tony, who sing, pick like Tony, collect the same Accutron watches as Tony Rice. I mean, we're talking a level of influence here that is so omnipresent in bluegrass and just will never be outdone. Tony is one of those artists who the dusters from time to time, we sit in the back of the bus late night after a show, spin a rice record and play air guitar like a bunch of giddy children. This is not 
an exaggeration. My hot tip for Rice Records, Tony Rice plays and sings bluegrass. I think that's my favorite. And there's so much more where that came from. Huge thanks to Tony Rice, a true visionary. Now, of course, there are so many huge influential artists in bluegrass like Bill Monroe. The music probably would not be around if it wasn't for Monroe. But as instrumentalists, Earl and Tony really stand apart in terms of influencing everyone who came after them on banjo and guitar. And that legacy as instrumentalists is so interesting and critical at this point in time when bluegrass is evolving like never before. And there are all these different influences coming into the style and all these young new artists taking the music new and different places. What ties that music back to bluegrass. You know, you could play a Metallica song or an Elton John song or an original song that have nothing to do with bluegrass on their own, but if you're playing them on banjo and guitar in the style of Earl and Tony, that's the thing that ties the music back to bluegrass. And that's how we can trace that evolution. And in a world where people are always wondering, oh, is this bluegrass or is it not? I'm always saying, what are the instrumentalists doing and how are they presenting this music and oftentimes that's the thing that makes it bluegrass i can hear the sirens of the bluegrass police tracking me down right now coming for me in my studio for such blasphemy but i believe that and i think it's really awesome to see all the evolution that's going on around bluegrass and all the clear ways that we can tie it back to the traditional forms of the music and ultimately that helps to shine a light on guys like Earl and Tony and of course all the other influential players who have developed the many other aspects of bluegrass the singing the way all the different instruments are played but Man, I'll tell you, those two pickers really stand out in terms of touching basically everyone that came after them on their chosen instruments. And just incredible to consider that level of influence. And it inspires me and it should inspire you to chase after whatever you believe in. Do it with all your heart. And if it even touches one person, that's a really meaningful thing. I'm going to head over to the Inside the Musician's Brain playlist on Spotify and drop some choice Earl and Rice stuff in there right now. Now on the topic of influential musicians, let's roll ahead to the first part of my conversation with O'Teal Burbridge. We got so deep into it that I had to break this one up into two parts. Really, really interesting stuff from a very interesting and talented musician. Here we go. All right, we are here on Inside the Musician's Brain with such a great guest today. This guy's musical pedigree is about as deep and wide as you could possibly imagine. But even more importantly, just a great human being who brings a great energy every time he steps into the room or walks on stage. And a guy who I've had the pleasure of playing with and getting to know over the years, Oteil Burbridge. Welcome to the podcast. Man, thank you for having me, teacher. It's a real pleasure, man. You didn't include that you're my teacher in the intro. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to some uh, we'll get to some banjo stuff here in a minute, but I wanted to just catch up with you, man. See how you're doing. You know, it's it's such an unprecedented time, and the music industry is certainly in a crazy state of flux right now. So yeah, I just wanted to start things out by. Hearing how you're doing, hearing what you're up to, and kind of hearing how you're taking this this current day situation on. Well, currently, great. Like, it was tough at first. Um, I noticed I gained a lot of weight at first. I could tell how I'm doing by my weight gain. <laughs> it's funny because it's just seven pounds, and I could take it off or put it on within a week. Either way. It could just be on there in a week and gone in a week. <laughs> right now, I'm on the. It's I need to take it off, but uh, I'm a little more forgiving now. Like some days, I'll just be like, you know what? I'm having bacon and donuts today, <laughs> and because you know, 
I love it's self care. That's part of my self care today. Self care is a is a big thing right now, man. You know, with I think with a lot of our regular outlets, you know, our our bandmates, our people we play with, our communities, the fans, the energy of all the preparation, getting on stage. When you take that stuff away, it's it's a big hole to fill. Yeah, even if like me, I would love to have just a break from it all, but. Having a break from it all, it's still a huge adjustment. Huge. Remember when we were saying, man, when's the last time anybody had three months straight off? You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> sure. Now it's like, how many months? You know, I know. And it's like wow. going into it, I, I had that same thought. You know, I think a lot of people felt like it's good to have a break, you know, and it's easy yeah. to get burnt out. You know, the current day music scene, the scene that we're a part of, is really predicated on touring. It's nonstop. And that's just yeah. that's just what you do. That's that's where the money's at. That's how people make their living these days. And that's the way that the, the business has evolved, the business that we've sort of inherited. And now we're getting that break that I think, you know, everyone thought that they'd never had, but it, it certainly seems to be going on a little longer than I anticipated. Yeah. Um but how are you? Uh, how are you adjusting, man? What are you working on? And uh, you know, what are what are some of the big challenges? What are some of the silver linings? Well, the silver linings, is, you know, from the get go, was I finally get to be home twenty four seven with my family. And you know, we just adopted a little girl from India, and she's two years old. She's going to be seen some pictures, man. She's adorable. <clears throat> yeah, she's wicked smart and funny and just it's and just she's been home a year october 19th and uh her progress so i've got to be home for so much of that yeah you know and um so that's wonderful you know uh we bought a new house which was scary and i think uh <laughs> we almost didn't get away with it but somehow it worked out and uh so now I have studio space again, and so does my wife. So us getting to create again, and that was September 1st we moved in. So that was a huge like bump up for us to be able to have space to create without the kid. You know, we couldn't even do it before. And, uh, and I tried like doing those Zooms and stuff for my old house. It was murder, man, with the kids all over. You know, they weren't in school at the time. It was just like, God. So... We're in a really great period right now. I have a little cushion thanks to uh, Almond Brothers and Dead and Company. But, you know, a year from now, if we're still not gigging, you know, it's, I'm going to, it's, uh, then I'll start to worry, you know. So, I'm so just, are, you, are you working on a lot of music right now? Or are you working well, on? Well, I am now. I wouldn't say working on a lot of, it's all, everything's scattershot. Like, I have a, a friend teacher and bandmate named Tom Guarna that plays guitar, really gifted jazz guitarist. And he showed me the scale that has one extra note in it, and it just sent me down. The, he calls it the bebop scale. So you could do it. There's bebop minor scale, bebop major scale, bebop dominant, right? And I'm just doing the minor because he says he's heard me playing it. It's just sent me down this rabbit hole. So now when I'm harmonizing that scale with the chord melody, I'm finding stuff that I found before, but I didn't trust it and I didn't see the context. Like I wasn't sure of that eighth note. And now that I am sure of it, the things that it's revealed has opened up just other dimensions that <clears throat> I were right around me so close and I just didn't see it. So wait, so, so what's I'm the sure, extra note? It's a six because I'm obsessed with six and that's what started the whole thing. Major six and minor six. Like I just am obsessed with it. It's something that Bobby Blue Bland sings a lot. There's certain, whenever I hear it, I just like, you know, um, and so Tom was like, yeah, yeah, I hear you playing it. I hear you playing the thing, you know. It's like, I got to show you the scale, the bebop scale. I was like, bebop scale, what is that, you know? And so he shows it to me, and then he shows me how it's harmonized, and I'm just like, all of a sudden, you know, when you just have this 
multiple aha it's not an explosion of aha moments all at once condensed into once in one you know i love and that I, so i know tunes are coming out of this and then i've been harmonizing this uh harmonic minor scale but starting on the five is a one i've been doing that for a couple of years because it was coming up in jams and almond brothers and dead and company i just wasn't totally free in it like i was major minor and dominant you know like so i had to just go down down the right and there's tunes that are on their way coming out of that too but right cool. now i'm just i'm just like getting my brain to where i can see it and just playing it over and over and over again so it's just in my head like osmosis i need to infuse you know and then the start will the stuff will just come out it'll start coming out by itself so, so that's a that's a good uh that's a good little side note for you aspiring musicians even a badass like O'Teal Burbridge is still shedding and discovering new things you know well into your career and i think that's that, you know, sometimes people don't realize that and they think, you know, you've got your thing, you've got it figured out and you sort of roll with that. But the energy of continuing to discover, that's that's what keeps us going. I think it's just curiosity. I yeah. mean, I'm literally, my older brother, Kofi, was like that, you know. He was just curious, eternally curious. And, you know, like I'm working on stuff now, this extended triad stuff, I'm still... I mean, Carol Kay showed me that stuff, what, 15 years ago? And I'm just now even seeing uh, ways to use it, you know. I'm not anywhere close to, like, what the horn players are doing. It'll take me the rest of my next two lifetimes, you know. So, But well, I, also like to, I also like to live life. Like, I don't want to spend all my time doing that, you know. So I'm okay if it takes me two lifetimes. Like, I don't need to... I don't have anything to prove like I got a master and be the Coltrane of the bass or whatever in this lifetime. Well, Not the, at the, the expense uh, the, of Nigel having a really great dad that's around, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's such a big part of it. And I think that that is the big silver lining for all of us. I think there is an element of getting to pull back and work on music, finish projects that maybe you didn't have time to really dig all the way into with such a busy touring schedule, but also just living life, the thing that informs all the music. I mean, let me ask you without putting you on the spot too much, because I feel like a lot of people have, have found their own true equilibrium outside of the hustle and what we're kind of forced into and pushed into by capitalism and and I'm pro capitalism I'm not trying to rail it up but just but I'm just saying so my question is like after this is over do you think you're going to tour as hard cuz I know I'm going to try to tour less it's a great question <laughs> and definitely one that has come up amongst the string dusters and I think we're all kind of drifting toward that zone where we're just realizing there's there's more to life than just the constant hustle and bustle, but that's, so yeah. So I think we are realizing that we hopefully can evolve in that direction. And that really requires you to kind of think about the career element of it. That's, that's a good segue to another question that I really wanted to dig into with you, which is how is this all going to affect the music industry? Because like I said earlier, we, we inherited this business model where touring is the thing, you know, and then yeah. through all the the changes of the last 20 years and the advent of streaming, rights ownership, and the revenue from recorded music has really dropped off. And now we all have time to sort of take a breath and look at the big picture. And I think we're realizing, I know I'm certainly realizing that I need to move things in the direction of finding other ways to make a living that aren't just on the road. And I think hopefully that that will be reflected in some changes in the music industry. And I think part of that will depend on the simple fact that now we, the musicians who've always been on the road, actually have time to pull back and advocate for ourselves and mm -hmm. conceive <clears throat> of a new way that that a career in music could look. So 
trying to tour less, trying to create more recorded music, trying to create more opportunities around that recorded music, and then hoping that some of those changes are reflected in the industry as far as recorded music has such a great value, but we're all sort of taught that you make your album, you put it on Spotify, people stream it for free. And though some of that pay (laughs) is coming up, it's still a long way from, from what we make on the road. But yeah. curious to, to hear what, what you think about all that. I think, you know, <clears throat> none of us know what's going to happen. But we had a lady on our podcast <clears throat> named Liz Dozier. And she has this thing about upsetting the status quo. So when I heard that, I was like, yes, please. <laughs> um, and she said, we think it can't be done. But she was like, but look at Uber. Look at Lyft. Look at Amazon. Like all these things changed industries. And so, and I thought she's right. It happens all the time for us, just in the music industry. Look at CDs, right? And then digital downloads, like put the record business pretty much out of business. Who even buys CDs anymore except for country in country music, right? Or people on the gigs because they yep. want something that we, we sell them because we'd sign it. You know, like, so things keep changing and making other things obsolete. I'm hoping something's going to do that with the Constitution. I hope it's something's going to do that with (laughs) the whole music business, because I I really do feel like musicians have to find a way. And you could tell me if this is the same for you, too. I, I have a little cushion because I've been doing bigger gigs, but a lot of the people that play in my band are not doing as big a gig. So everybody's on a different level. I was very worried about them individually. I would call them like, how are you doing? You know, mm-hmm. and what I've been finding is everybody's been finding another way. That's right. And I've even been to other people, and I won't name any names, have been telling me like, you know, they've been DJing and doing stuff. And they're like, man, I'm like not leaving my house. And when I was making this kind of money out on the road, a lot of that money was staying on the road. That's right. Super high it's, overhead. And yeah. So like, it's like, what's the worst way to make money is on the road, unless you're super big, right? So I think they already people already are finding their way, and that's going to continue, especially the longer the pandemic sustains, like the longer it, it stays like this where we can't tour anymore. I think in the long run, it's going to be better for us if we find another way. And then when it comes back, we're like, ah, not so fast, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and le- not to stop, but not so fast or not so much. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? And necessity, the mother of invention and people who embrace that, you know, those are the Amazons and the Ubers of the world. But the music industry is such an interesting example of those things because we had the CD, which was this physical format that you could put the music on, this really convenient thing that you could sell, that you could hand to someone. And then as digital formats really came of age and that container went away, somehow our conception of how we could make money off music and how we could actually capture that revenue as artists really changed when all these middlemen flooded into the industry. Yeah. And I really hope that the the pandemic doesn't just deliver us another, you know, Spotify, another middleman, another streaming service well, who That's and, all up to our individual choice though. Like it's yep. all there. I liken that to Bernie Sanders and Tulsi Gabbard. Like they, we didn't have to wait for Citizens United. Those two said, I'm not taking any corporate money. Yeah. They, they're like, I'm going to get money out of my politics. And so if you vote for me, money will be out of your politics. Yeah. Because I have to serve you. So we all have to remember what Prince said. Like, you know, the way to do it, it's like $50 gigs. The way to make $50 gigs go away is to never take one again. Yeah. And, you right? ha- and like you said a minute ago, we have to lead the charge on that. Own your own stuff. <laughs> do not put it on Spotify. Keep it yeah. to yourself. Own or- all your... You know. Yeah, I agree. And and I think, like I said earlier, I think one of the silver linings that I'm seeing is that now we actually have the time 
and the bandwidth to advocate on behalf of ourselves. And I think yeah. some of the innovations that you're inevitably going to see are there are some really antiquated elements of the music industry, the teams that we build, the the people that we hire. You know, a lot of these roles could potentially be consolidated, but we could still do everything that we do with as much conviction and intention. But it's that age old adage of artists aren't great business people. But, you know, yeah. I, I disagree with that. In this day and age, there's a lot of really mm -hmm. smart people who are owning owning their their own path. It's just now we have time to actually look, I think, more carefully at these things. Yeah. And I, I'm really curious to see where it goes just because there's got to be a better way than being on the road 100 days a year and doing that for or 10 more. years before you can eat. Well, yeah, I mean, 100 shows a year and doing that for 10 years before you even find out if you've got a thing on your hands, you know? Yeah. But meanwhile, yeah. there are artists who are already making a good living off of, you know, streaming and YouTube, uh, like yeah, YouTube <laughs> you know, playing like, the playing the sort of algorithm game on Spotify. Yeah. And even though they're not out there touring a hundred shows yeah. a year, they have that time to really conceive of a new way of doing things and of making a meaningful yeah. living, while also really finding their voice and finding what's meaningful yeah. to them. And that's that's the whole ticket. I just hope that everyone's taken advantage of this time to, you know, take stock of what they do and figuring out sort of new path forward. Because when yeah. you're in that rut of a hundred shows a year, even though it can be amazing and gratifying, you don't have any time for anything else. Yeah. It is. You know, it's almost it can be it can be a trap. I think that for people that are <clears throat> that have that are taking good care of their mental health and have a good you know have good relationships a firm foundation in that like you know my wife my kids everything they are doing that you know some people are freaking out you know there's a lot of suicides going on I didn't realize how many uh a young friend of mine who's a musician so he's had three or four friends commit suicide recently oh, so man. it's it doesn't always work out but you know if you can do it now's a good time to do it and i i have to say my crew all the crew people that work for me have been amazing amazingly resilient because they have to be anyway yeah i was talking to Katie she was like hey man we got to roll with the punches and be flexible and nimble all the time anyway i mean that's this business so yeah. <laughs> and our business changes you know fast too so they're really they're all doing okay they're all landing on their feet and and finding these new things i think i think as hard as it is for such a large part of society you know within the group of people that I know, it seems to have been a good thing and I think will be a good thing long term. Yeah. No, I, I agree. But not and without its trials and tribulations. Yeah. yeah. And that then and as you say, that extends well beyond just us, the musicians. I'm thankful, you know, even though the whole music industry has been floored, I feel grateful to be in a position where I can still build my brand, record music, and like you say, some of the the crew and the ancillary players who help make our thing happen, they've got to be nimble all along. So this is like nothing yeah. new for them. But um, yeah. man, I, don't you miss getting on stage? I do, man. <laughs> I didn't think I would. I, I was like, I could totally retire, right? If I, I, I said, God's not letting me have the money to retire because God knows that I would. <laughs> but now I've got to find out, and it, and it turns out that, I mean, I would retire, but I I probably would still play like what Den Company does, like 20 dates a year. Yeah. And that's what I want to get to. I want to get to doing 20 dates a year. Yeah. The best ones. I don't want to tour. I want to stay in one place and have everybody fly to me. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, do it's like crazy, they do man. in Vegas or Branson, Missouri or something, you know? It's... I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that I took it for granted, although I think in some way people don't realize, you know, playing live 
it's it's so much more than the 90 minutes that you see those people up on stage. Yeah. It's all the preparation, it's all the travel, and implicit in that are a lot of big challenges. And those challenges, when you're playing 100 shows a year, can really pile up on you. But then when yeah. you take that away, for me, I've realized, you know, challenges and adversity, that's, that's the stuff that makes you who you are. And there's this sort of purpose element of of the live playing that again extends yeah. well beyond the time on stage it's yeah it's all that shedding it's all that introspection it's all that figuring out how you're going to do your thing the best that you can it's not just the glory of getting up there and ripping a show yeah it's like that purpose element and i personally i've definitely struggled a bit with with not having that in my life it's such a big yeah. driver you know yeah for sure it's hard that's why I say it's made everybody find out what their true equilibrium is, like who they are, like what, because it's, you know, like I was talking about this with Dwayne Trucks. We were doing a Neil Casal uh, tribute record, and um, he's like, you know, when so much of your identity is wrapped up, then it becomes like, who am I? And I thought... <clears throat> I'm really lucky because as soon as Nigel's head popped out, my identity completely changed, and I was now Nigel's dad. Yeah, and that's my primary identity. So everything else could be—I could lose both my hands in a car accident. I'm still Nigel's dad. Like I, that's who I am. So I can live without everything, but my family. You know. Um, so I'm lucky in that respect. And I think, but it's good for everyone to like find out like who are you really? Because you're not your career, ultimately. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Not just. I'm not saying you're not that it's none of you. I mean, it's obviously a huge part of us. But you know, like now we're into like religious philosophy. Like, who are you? Yeah. Yeah. And I've always wondered that. I've always been curious about that. What am I? And who am I? And, you know, and so do so you feel like a lot of that really changed when you guys had Nigel? All of it changed. All of it changed. I, you know, it changed, you know, and this goes back into other stuff. It changed when I had a really super strong religious experience and awakening or spiritual or, or however you want to put it. Like, I'm not limited to the Bible, but I also can see everything that happened to me in those terms because I'm a theology geek. I like the theology of all religions, you know, so I think it's, I'm like the Alex Gray type where religion is art, mm -hmm. so it's misunderstood. It's not supposed to be taken literally like that, but, you know. So wait, can we talk about that? Your, Absolutely. Your, your awakening and, and how that oh, went boy. down, when that went down, what, what did that That's a whole like? long podcast, <laughs> but I'll give you the short version. I was at my spiritual bottom, just kind of lost in my addictions. And it was funny because my earth life was the best. I had time and money. I was with the Almond Brothers. Uh, I had a place in Birmingham, Alabama, where I used to live, and a place in New York. And I just I didn't have a care in the world, and I was absolutely miserable. Just... And I'm not a suicidal person, so I just that was never on the table. I was like, "Well, Earth sucks, <laughs> I suck, but you know, people feel better when I play, so I'll just ride this thing out, and it is what it is. Fuck it, right?" And I just at at one point I was just so like, "How can it be this bad?" Like I was happy as a kid one time, you know, and I just kind of a friend of mine died. And that kind of thinned the veil for me. And at that point, I reached out to God, whatever you want to call it. And it was just like, you know, I'm, at, I'm done. I'm at the bottom. I'm just like so dark and hopeless. And I don't know what to call you or whatever, but if you're there, I really need you right now. And then I heard a voice say, we're here for you. And I eventually it was three voices, and I talked to him for like 30 minutes, and I was just like, okay, this is really weird. But when I, caught, when I reached out, it happened. And I said, well, why didn't you come before when I, I asked you before? And they said, you didn't ask right. You weren't humble about it. Hmm. And I was like, damn, you just know they're right, you know? 
So it was because I was like, I'm done. I tried it my way. I can't do it anymore. Like, please, just please. I'm just desperate. And I didn't expect anything to happen at all, you know. So then they set me on a path that completely changed my life, you know. So here I was like this guy that was like had a vasectomy. Like I wouldn't curse a child by bringing it to this fucked up place. Like, you know, and why would they want to have me as a dad? I'm like the worst guy. Ruined my first marriage, all that stuff, you know. So... But that changed my life. Now I have two kids. I have an adopted girlfriend. <laughs> you know, like it's like my life just completely flipped. You know, and then I look at my brother who didn't flip it, and he's gone. Mm. He's gone. So the stakes are high. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it so, all comes down to like, who are you? And so here's here was a big turning point for me. Yeah, and there's please. a lot of if thens in this. Okay. And I base this on the fact I do believe in the mystical because of Kofi always told me, look for the patterns, and I see patterns in nature. So if there's patterns, if we're looking for aliens, we're looking for, to see a pattern because if there's a pattern, there's a pattern maker, mm-hmm. right? So if I find patterns in nature, there's got to be a pattern maker. So if there's a pattern maker, and my theology says, God, whatever that is, this supreme intelligence or whatever it is that made the pattern is love, right? And uses the parental metaphor to explain that, which I think is perfect. Because when I think about me and Nigel, all that makes sense now. Like if you want to take it literally and nitpick this and weigh this more than that, none of it makes sense. But if you just look at the story of a parent and how a parent feels about a child, it, it's duh, right? And at the same time. So the if then is like, if this divine parent that is love made all this, right? <clears throat> and as small as I am, it, I'm important to it. And it loves me as much as anything else, who am I to not love myself being that small? That's a big, a lot of ifs, Mm -hmm. you know? But then when I think about me and Nigel, it makes perfect sense. Including me, because here's what we struggle with as addicts. I don't deserve it. Okay. Yeah, you don't. I could say that to Nigel. Nigel could go, I don't deserve it. I'd be like, yeah, you don't. But you know what? I love you. And there's nothing that can change that. Even if he denies me, it doesn't change the fact that I am his parent. (laughs) For sure. So do you feel like, so you said that you had reached out in this manner before, but you you weren't humble enough. You didn't have that humility. So what's the thing that brings you to that place of humility this is what i asked some uh, johnny podell another guy on the podcast because he went through oh my god some addiction stuff that i fortunately never had to go through that and i i texted him one night after the podcast i said what if addiction is god's gift to us so that we won't keep these fucking enormous egos it's to put you in your place. And he I forget what he texted me back, but it's something along the lines of that's what I found to be true. So for you, he's a big 12-stepper. You know, and it's there's a book by Paul Brand called The Gift of Pain. His mother uh worked with lepers in India and, and the problem was their their nerve endings were uh not working. And, you know, so they could break a finger off and not know it, all this kind of stuff. And he mm-hmm. realized pain is a gift because pain tells you where the problem is and it tells you exactly how bad the problem is. And without that, you could just, you know, you get gangrene. There's all kinds of things that happen. If, you, if that pain doesn't tell you it's a gift, it might be one of the greatest gifts of all. And, you know, the guys that were on our – I keep talking about our podcast, but – the mental health guys on our podcast, the thing they said that struck me the most, they said that which you are the hurting the most about and the most scared of and all these things, all these dark feelings, is that that's what you care about the most. That's why mm. a lot of these things you can go back and when you dig up, when you root up the past, you find these things d- back in your childhood, you know, and then you got to go back and work 
from there back forward to where you are now. Uh, addictions like that a lot. So, so you mean you, like addiction in terms of the kind of adversity that it presents to us? It's like yes. this thing that's just beyond our control. And and and, and well, we don't. And that's not beyond our control. We don't have to participate in it. It's just right. there. Like if we, you know, we're like farmers with addiction. Ooh, we'll till that land and plant those seeds and water them and we'll work that sucker, you know, and then all of a sudden it's grown into something that's too big for us. But we put the work in. You know what I mean? Like you didn't have to put the work in. And so you then know, but where does, so how does, how does that journey evolve then? How does that? Well, you take somebody, deliver you, you. you look at, uh, you take this old self and you direct all that energy in another direction. There's some beautiful stuff in the, in the Bible about how God prefers the bigger asshole, <laughs> you know? And it's like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And then it's like, but the concept is, um, love can use the bold, it needs someone to be bold. Like, there's this one thing that said, I think it was Jesus that said, I prefer you to be hot or cold, but if you're a lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Right? And Paul talks about this in the sense that, like, a bold person, it sins boldly, you know, does big evil. And, and love says, that's the person I can use, because if I can turn that towards love, then we're going to have some progress. But the, like, the guy sitting on the fence or the guy that's not really as fired up, even if he's on the good side, it's like he won't do or she won't do nearly as much for me as this fucking really bold bad guy over here if I can turn them. Right? Mm-hmm. It's a, such a – and I was like, Wow. So there's a lot in there. To, to That's what you do. You, you move that same energy over. Like, look at Trey Anastasio, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and there's very few that do it, man. Like, a lot of people don't, you know, they think they're Keith Richards and shit. It's like, you ain't. You, you mean ain't that John they Lee don't Hooker. make it through? Hell no. Yeah. My brother didn't make it through, you yeah. know? So you... You don't want to go down that road. Better to take your thing and, you know, turn your holic into something positive. Like yeah. I try to be more of a dadaholic, like be a good dad or work on more music. Or Now, you yeah. could become a workaholic too, and now if your relationships are suffering from that, now you just made a negative substitute, you know. But you got to turn that same energy, you know, and that's what – they, whoever they are, what they are, help me do. Yeah, that's that's and fascinating, took, man. I love it that. Took. And it's it's a never ending journey, you know. And it's it's a journey. Absolutely. It's a journey forward. It's a journey through all these things. It's a constant process of recognition and self awareness. But it's also a journey back toward your original self, you know. And yes, it's like salmon, you know. But also evolution at the same time. It's so beautiful. And then when you have kids. You see, the whole is just amazing. It's really amazing. And yeah. I'm so glad that I made it out of that because it was just like everything was just the road and this thing that it's billions of dollars are spent on creating this image. And so, like, you know, well, and one it's, of the big does... no nos in, 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 in religions is idolatry. And that's what our business is on the bad side of it. It's inspiration and church on one side and just pure idolatry on the other side. And, and... Just pure. Like Trump is the president because he was a reality show star, an idol. <laughs> you know, it's just. Yeah, like... it's that. It's that. It's true. It's that manifestation of ego that, you know, and, and the it's, it's such a such a potent teacher and music for me that's the challenge in music is you know and you hear it all the time it's like you start to sound good or i should say you start to sound like yourself which is the real good when you don't give a shit anymore you know and and it's a it's a journey man because you're you're on stage and you say like the idolatry and and everybody 
everybody sort of, you know, there's this sense, this general sense with musicians and performance that you're up there and that's the place that you want to be. But there's another process at play, you know, with, with ego growing. And I mean, we see it now just front and center with everything that's going on with politics and social change, but that's Every- something I love about bluegrass festivals. You know, people just be standing in the parking lot or on the grass over here. There's not this so much of this up on a pedestal thing. Like it's just Pure. much more horizontal. You know what I mean? There's just Absolute, less man. ego about it. And I love that feeling at bluegrass festivals like that, man. I just that's, love it. that's such a great point. And that's why, that's why I fell in love with it. And I want to say real quick, O'Teal has been mentioning his podcast Comes a Time podcast <laughs> on the Osiris Podcast Network and Inside the Musician's Brain, both a part of the Osiris Network and so much great stuff. With my guys, buddy Mike Fanoia, awesome yep. stand-up comedian. You guys have been killing it, man. I've, I've been enjoying Thank listening. And, um, We've had fun. Yeah, that's, that's the thing about bluegrass, man. And that's when I look back and you know, I, I, keep, a, I keep a journal with music because as I progress and try to evolve, I find that it's it's oftentimes hard and cloudy to remember like what was a good show and what was a bad show. And we can get too focused on the things that are challenging to us, too focused on yeah. the negative, but there's a lot of progression in there. And so, you know, trying to be as mindful about that as you go along. And I sometimes reminisce in there about my early days of playing banjo, you know, and I may have had some aspirations of trying to be a professional musician, but man, you know, I'd go to these bluegrass, I lived for the bluegrass festivals and I, some festivals, I wouldn't even watch any of the music on stage. I was out in the crowd (laughs) jamming with people and, you know, (coughs) a, a favorite sort of recurring thing for me in my career is the Gray Fox bluegrass festival up in New York. It's the first bluegrass festival I ever went to first music festival I ever went to. And, you know, I got my undergrad degree up in New Hampshire and I used to go to these jam sessions with the local pickers. And I was like, I remember thinking like, how is everyone not playing bluegrass all night and (laughs) commute? I mean, this is like the most amazing thing ever. And fast forward 15 years and the string dusters are headlining Gray Fox. And, you know, we've been back there a handful of times and I always go out and find this crew of guys, you know, Charlie yeah. Downey, Rich Heapy, um, just a great crew of, of guys who they play in bands and they're really good players. I mean, a lot of bluegrass yeah. players who never hit the professional circuit are really good, can really play. <laughs> yeah. And being on stage is like such a payoff and awesome, awesome element of of sort of the culmination of what you do. But for me going to Gray Fox, I looked forward to going out and hanging out with those guys. And as soon as we were off stage, I'd go find them. And it was just, oh, it would just take me back to that time when, yeah, bluegrass has got such a communal thing going on and such a true oral tradition. Yeah, it's more humble, you know? It's like the, the black juke joint. You know, in Mississippi, the blues place, it's just more. And for me, you know, like being, I'm from Southeast Washington. I'm a black dude from Southeast Washington. So being in like bluegrass festivals in Georgia and South Georgia, it was like, I might as well have been going to Mars, you know. But the feeling, it was so palpable, man. It was so uh, just, I don't know, really healing. And it got me turned on to, I got to say, the deeper that I got into <clears throat> banjo and acoustic music and playing acoustic, it really <clears throat> made me not want to play so loud. Because I've always that? been with loud electric guitar and yeah. drums and rock, you know, like, uh, yeah, just having my banjo, like when I lived in uh, Georgia next to that Black Angus cow farm, and I was out on the back deck, uh, my my wife lived in Africa for a year, the first year that we were married. Which and that's was, when you started to learn banjo, right? Brutal. I picked up her banjo. Okay. <clears throat> and then and, and not, not everyone, I, I know not everyone knows this about you, and this is <laughs> sort of our common thread. Yeah. O'Teal is a five-string banjo player, and, and <laughs> I'm just 
curious to, yeah, tell with, us a little bit more picks. about how you got into that, why you got into that, how it sort of fits into your musical well, world. It's, it's funny, you know, when I met uh, Jeff Moser, Reverend Moser in 1988 through Colonel Bruce, I actually lived with him at one point in 88. He had this old banjo, man. That sucker was always hanging on the wall. Was it? I'm trying to remember if it was actually functional or not. Can't remember. Well, not to my hands anyway. He goes, man, you should be playing this. I was like, what do you mean? He said, you, this is your instrument. I was like, what do you mean it's your instrument? He's like, black people, it's your instrument. For sure. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, He's like, it comes from Africa, man. I didn't know that. Yeah. I was like, really? And then I looked at it. I was like, it's a guitar that's still a drum. Okay. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> you know? So he said, yeah, man. This, And he saw that in 88. <laughs> I love it. It tried to get me to do it. But you know, the lowest string being a high one and, and finger picks. For me, you ever see dogs with shoes on and they walk like this? Because it's <laughs> that's what finger picks feel like to me. Like, what is this? You know. So I was not. I didn't have any time for that right then. But I learned about that connection to Africa, and then so all these years later, when I'm after Jess and I were married, <clears throat> she would play guitar, but she would never like strum. She would always finger pick, and I was like, you ever think about? playing banjo because you always do this and she oh man i'd love a banjo i was like well let's get one you know so we got one then she moved to africa to work with diane fossey gorilla fun and i'm at home boohooing just so depressed so i i picked up her banjo because it was something that was new and i wanted to be not good at something again plus i've always loved banjo and it just was like let me just give myself something to do and then, so I, I remember calling her and going, how did you learn your forward, your, I didn't even know what they were called yet. I was like, how did you learn your roles? She was just like, just on YouTube. So I just did beginning banjo roles on YouTube and I learned my forward role, my backward role, and then, you know, alternating thumb and blah, blah, blah. And then I started making different combinations. And then when I started trying to figure out this insane tuning, and that helped me, you know, I started tinkering with the chords the way I do on six string bass and then I, all of a sudden I had all these tunes that came out of exercises and I started making odd time exercises and, and now I'm just down the rabbit hole I got the Scruggs book Tony Trishka gave me his password to his teaching website so I had full access to everything now I'm watching give me the banjo documentary that Tony Trishka was the musical consultant for yeah. Steve Martin. I went and I got Throw Down Your Heart by Bela. So good. Now I'm like YouTube and the African guys, but I can't play with them because I've been learning bluegrass. And now I'm frustrated. I'm like, I can't play with my bros on this thing. <laughs> so then I just forced myself to keep jamming with them. And then I found this thing that unlocked all my like African shit and that's when all my tunes just exploded. That's a wrap on this episode of Inside the Musician's Brain. Our next episode will feature the second part of this amazingly interesting conversation. Thank you so much to O'Teal Burbridge and I want to say another huge thanks to Earl Scruggs and Tony Rice for forever changing the face of bluegrass and music in general. Thanks also to our sponsors, EMG Pickups and Daddario, makers of all types of quality musical products. This podcast is brought to you by Osiris Media and Americana Vibes. If you dig what you're hearing, please head over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and leave us a review. And I'll see you back here in two weeks for the next episode of Inside the Musician's Brain. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. 
Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil Story Made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Again.